0: The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest
1: memories
2: when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin.
0: Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Welcome Hour, episode 34. As always, joined by the three amigos, we've got Rich Diaz, Tom Brady of Macro, Acorn Macro Consulting, and we've got everyone's favorite boomer, Keith Dicker with Ice Cap Asset Management. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, lots to talk about this week. Should be a great episode, but uh, let's start it off with what everyone was probably looking forward to, paying attention. We had the, uh, the Twinkie bet on the line. Of course, we all had 50 basis point rate hike from the BOC consensus um and you know it was kind of a bit of a snooze fest so um yeah June 1st uh Bank of Canada raised rates 50 basis points so really no you know nothing shocking there really just kind of status quo i think they've set themselves up for what looks like another 50 basis points uh i believe it's mid July i don't know if anyone's got that in front of them but so We'll have another probably 50 basis points in July. There was no press conference following Tiff Macklem's comments. so we didn't really get to, to hear from the big boy there. but uh, we did get uh, some updates today from uh, sort of his one of his chief of staff there. I don't know what you'd call him, but um, you know he's definitely coming a little on the more hawkish side. Uh, Bowdry. Is it Tim or Tom? Tim Buk- I don't know. It doesn't really matter. He sucks. Um, <laughs> re- anyways, he's basically, you know, came out with a pretty hawkish statement. Bullard says bank of Canada is resolute to bring down inflation. Bank of Canada indicates policy rate may need to move past 3%. Of course, we're at one and a half percent right now. Um, more likely rates rise to top of the neutral range or beyond. And uh, so, yeah, pretty hawkish statement. Uh, Keith, I don't know if you had any comments, uh, you know, anything that you're looking at based on that, that 50 basis points move. Obviously,
2: we'll, you know, unpack this thing a little bit further, but curious your thoughts. Well, first of all, I was the only guy in, in the world waiting for the presser to start, which I discovered very quickly. There, there was no presser yesterday. And uh, so that, you know, that was fun. Um, you know, so when there's no presser, no opportunity for Q and A, you don't get to, you know, fill in the blanks, you know, in in the lines of the statement that comes out. So, you uh, know, again, we always encourage people if you have a chance to hop on, listen to the Bank of Canada presser when they have it, or the Fed, or, or the ECB. Like, it's really interesting to hear how they interact with uh, people asking questions, and you never know something unexpectedly comes out. But yesterday here in Canada, there was that opportunity wasn't there. And uh, so the next meeting is July 13th that, that you're asking about there, Steve. So the one, so because there's no presser, then everybody who has access to the statement, they'll try to analyze it and, and interpret it this way or that way. The, the one interesting point that came out, uh, one or two guys, and then it starts to snowball a bit, they're now suggesting that the Bank of Canada is hinting that they might raise rates by 75 basis points at the next meeting. Um, so we'll we'll see maybe that's the Twinkie bet coming I've up I've got a I've got
0: a hundred dollar bet uh, with a Twitter uh, follower actually we we bet we bet a hundred dollars on June 1st uh, he was betting for 75 beeps so I, I won that a friendly donation to the SBCA and I have another one with him same guy uh, for July he's also uh, doubling down on his bet for 75 beeps so uh, the SBCA is is really the the benefactor of all these rate hikes right now. Um, but Keith, I actually had a question for you um, because you said on Twitter and you never responded to any of the tweets, but uh, you said you had a really good, you said, can you connect me with a reporter? Because I have a really good question for them to lob the Bank of Canada. I don't know if you're able to uh, share that. You can do a role yeah. playing yeah, went-
1: game. Keith can ask the question
2: and I can pretend I'm Tiff Macklin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, 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 no, let's kidding. shoot with that. It sort of ties in like the whole conversation that we'll, so before I get into that, I will tell you the question that we have. And it's not, it's not meant to be a, a funny or quirky question or, you know, a, a gotcha moment at all. Nothing like that. It's cause again, not, not all of us have access to the central bank guys for the pressers. So it, it is really tough to get in there. And sometimes the questions that are asked, you know, they're, they're expected. Right. Um, But just carrying on real quickly, though, with with the Bank of Canada, now they're, you know, for some reason, some of the analysts are saying, hey, 75 basis points on July 13th. Uh, That would be an incredibly big, shocking event if if that happened. So just as a couple of months ago when they did zero rate hike, because I think uh, Rich Diaz was the only person in the world who said they wouldn't raise rates. And everyone else thought they were going to. If they do 75 at, at the next meeting, then it's, again, it's, it's, it's that kind of moment. Uh, but they were very hawkish with everything they said in this statement. And, you know, we'll continue to go down that path. Well, what's also interesting is that this week, the, um, well, over the last week, a lot of the members of the U.S. Fed or the Federal Open Market Committee, they've been out discussing the same concepts. But I just want to explain something that, that's it's really important for everyone to understand the way the Fed is set up. It, it's a big collection of a, a bunch of individuals. I won't go into how it's it's set up, but it's, it's, it, it is set up this way. But there's a rotating basis on who gets the vote on the policy, on the monetary policy. And then other people, they attend all the meetings, but they're not allowed to vote, the sort of like alternate Members, and the schedule is is on their uh, is on the internet. You can see, like for example, I think this year the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. That's one of the guys. He is not a voting member. I think next year he'll roll back on and and stuff like that. You have to know who has voting um, rights and then who doesn't when they're out there talking their book. So this past week you had uh, Bostic. He's with the Atlanta Fed. And then you had uh, Waller. I don't know who Waller's with. It, it might be Richmond, something like that. Um, so Waller was incredibly hawkish this week, saying, yeah, we need to be very aggressive for hiking rates. Maybe we'll hike even more than what the market is expecting similar to what the Bank of Canada came out with. And then you had just this this other uh, this this other guy Bostick he's gone the opposite said so, you know maybe we should pause at the next meeting maybe we don't need to raise rates enough and again like you have two of them out there you know the, the strongman poll like they're trying to get you know the market sort of leaning on each side trying to make people feel a bit more comfortable maybe but the, the, you ignore what bostic is saying and you have to watch what waller is saying what waller is saying hey we're going to continue to raise rates and we'll be aggressive about it and that's the same message we got from uh the bank of canada yesterday we'll also jump over to the ecb in, in a little bit back to the question though for the for the uh yeah my famous twitter feed by the way i want one, one person replied i think they were able to make an introduction for me but there was no presser so it was it's kind of stupid on my side. Um, it's come to my attention. So that in the, with the Americans, you know, their balance sheet is $9 trillion. So you find that online. It's not a, it's like 8.9 something. So that's up that
0: I think just for context, that's up from, I believe it was what? 1 trillion pre global financial crisis. And so now we're at nine.
2: Yeah. Um, it's gone from one to nine, like over like, 14 years, 13 years. And so, just an incredible. If you see that, I think I have the graph on my Twitter feed uh, pushed out. Um, and now they're starting. I think it's next week. They'll actually start unwinding the balance sheet, you know, which is a, a big important event that's taking place. And then uh, one one of uh, one of my friends in the network, he, you know, he, he sent me a private note and he said, by the way, Keith, the number is actually twelve trillion. I'm like, where are you getting the twelve from? He said, "Well, you know, we we know there's another three trillion in credit swaps that they have on their books. So what that means is that the Fed, some the big banks out there have taken credit risk off their balance sheets, and they've written, you know, in my world we call it the notic or over the counter type contract, which which is off balance sheet, so it doesn't show up in your official books anywhere." But the Fed has taken another $3 trillion of risk, you know, from the banks. So then I said, what do other central banks, are they doing this as well? And he said, he doesn't know for certain, because we like to deal with, you know, with facts in terms of what you're told, but um, he, he suggested to him that, you know, most likely the Europeans are doing this. So my question would have been for the Bank of Canada, do, do you guys have any credit swaps off balance sheet for the Canadian banks that's not disclosed? Boom. Not,
0: yeah, which has been a say, really good, a really well, a interesting swab. question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, they would get know. Get the hell out it, of the room. They would know what it is, uh, of course. But, yeah, but again, yeah. those are the kinds, when we get to extreme moments, that's what central banks are, are doing. You know, to do you, to you keep, think, keep, sorry, Keith, do you think that they do? Do you think that they do? I, I don't know. I, I I don't like to make a, a, a guess. You know, I like to see what's the probability of it. Yeah. You know, I, I know they bought mortgages from the banks there a couple of years ago. They, they did that. They provided other kinds of support, but um, I don't think the Canadian banking system has been in that same situation of the American system. So if, if they did, it would be like an, an incredibly large surprise for everyone. If they didn't, it, it shouldn't be. But the point is though, those are the kinds of questions that should be asked. At the You're gonna get a shadow band here. Yeah, our our viewers dropped from 12 down to 3. Uh, my mom won't stop listening.
0: God bless her. What's rich? What's uh what do you got any commentary on this?
1: Yeah, I think um two things I thought really stood out for me. One was that we're back to the 29 we're almost back to the 2019 high um of 175 on the main policy rate which sort of i know I, I know this sounds silly but it sort of snuck up on me i don't know wh- why but i just was like looking at and i was updating my I was updating my chart pack and 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 I just like we're 25 basis points w- away from where we were sort of in 2019 and yet the entire world is collapsing around either real estate markets or seeing editorials come out uh, I mean, I read one that just just made me crazy about how, you know, we need to pump the brakes on the rate hikes and this and that. And, you know, meanwhile, real interest rates, which is adjusted for inflation, you know, continue. I mean, some measures it continues to sort of um, get lower and lower. It is certainly very negative. Um, And so I just was like, you know, I feel like the messaging somehow versus the reality sort of split for me in a way that just I know it's silly for me to admit, but it's true. I just sort of caught me off guard, even though I look at this shit every single day. Um, and so, yeah, so and then just to give some, some more context, you know, the, the, the previous high before that was in 2009, and it was about 4.5, 2000, end of 2008, uh, 2000 was it 4.5. And there real interest rates, it was the last sort of time real interest rates were positive. It's not a coincidence that we have a huge housing bubble after real estates are negative, that's a conversation for a different day. The other thing that has stood out for me was, um, it's sort of an admission of, of guilt, I think what we're seeing. And it's it's kind of welcome, as far as I'm concerned. I think when you screw up, and I screw up all the time—not all the time, but a, fair enough—it's important that you just say I screwed up, and you work to correct it, acknowledge the problem, and move on. And I think that, that them flirting with the idea that they want to raise interest rates by 75 basis points, I think, is sort of an admission of guilt. Um, I'm not exactly sure they'll ever come out and say it, but to me, I think that you know, reading between the lines, um, that's that was my takeaway. And then obviously seeing Janet Yellen come out and literally admit guilt with respect to getting the inflation thing wrong. Um, you know, now Republicans in America are like, you know, mocking her and saying that she should be kicked out of office and blah, blah. I disagree. I think she deserves a round of applause. I think if more central bankers and more governments came out and said, we screwed the pooch. Here's what we, th- we thought it was a good idea. We were wrong. We're adjusting our thinking, our belief, our understanding you know, there's like a great um, John Maynard Keynes quote, you know, it's like when the data changes, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And I think that this idea that you should be uh, admonished or made fun of for changing your mind or missing admitting that you fucked up, I think is a terrible, tele- terrible precedent to set in our technocrats at the minimum and definitely in our politicians. Well, so I think that the fact that Janet Allen came out and
0: said that, I think is
1: a great thing, frankly,
0: sorry, Steve, go ahead. Well, I mean, that's a good, good point to interject because I, uh, Admittedly, obviously, you know, as we were, we we're dunking on uh, Scotia Bank for eight rate hikes at the beginning of the year. We're now at technically, I guess, we're at five because there's those two fifties plus mm-hmm. the little one five. I think we had three or four. So it's too early to me to give them a victory lap. I mean, Scotia Bank also said that they were not going to see a decline in house prices, which I'll touch on briefly. Um, so they might actually be they might actually get it right to eight, but I think not without crumbling as we talked about, you know, crumbling markets. And I think that we're already seeing that, particularly here in the Canadian housing space, Um, because, you know, just a quick stat for everybody. So depending on where you are, like obviously I'm in Vancouver. So if we look at the suburbs of Vancouver, which is, we call it the Fraser Valley, um, that's really where most of the, the speculative froth was, you know, the pandemic, everybody worked from home. So move, you know, 45 minutes out from the city um may home sales just came in so they were down 54 percent year over year 54 percent um that is like a tremendous drop i know that we're talking about a year over year base effect of like record home sales last may but to get to see volumes get cut in half like that's gonna hurt because you have to think about it from the perspective of like i just work in the industry so i see it which is like all the hiring that's been happening over the last like 12 to 18 months because everyone's like so every realtor now like has a full-time assistant every big bank is uh i was just talking to one of the big banks they they doubled their mortgage broker account over the last 12 months like always at the top of the market so like you know like now all of a sudden like the volume's drying up like those people are gonna be the first to get cut um and same thing for like developers right like they're aggressively hiring trades and getting shovels and ground so um, yeah, I just think like the, the knock on effects we're seeing, and I actually, it's funny because like we talked about a 54% drop in the Fraser Valley in Vancouver here, but like the suburbs in Ontario are horrendous. That's where most of the, the bloodbath is. And that's really Canada's most systemically important housing market. You know, uh, my good buddy, Ron Butler, who runs Butler mortgages, they're like one of the largest, uh, broker channels in Canada. And he's telling me that 50% of uh, mortgage uh, mortgage appraisal values are coming in below what people are paying. Like, like To have a 50% failure rate on mortgage appraisals in Ontario is catastrophic. Sorry, can you, what does that mean? So <laughs> basically, okay, so you buy a house for a million dollars, right? So you have an accepted offer. Maybe you have subjects in there, maybe you don't. Most of the time, they now usually have subjects now. So you pay you make an offer to purchase for a million dollars and the, the appraiser goes in there to, to appraise the value to, to confirm the loan and he says ah it's only worth 950 sorry sir so now you have to either renegotiate that contract with the seller or you have to come up with a larger down payment or you simply just back out of the contract again you can only back out of the contract if you have that subject clause in there which allows you to um so we're just seeing what it's just it's 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 basically just a further tightening of like financial conditions. Sorry, can I ask one more dumb question? What authority does the appraiser have? Like if you
1: and I agree on a number, one, isn't that the only number that counts? Like yeah, why, but is the, the, why is the appraiser allowed to come in and say, no, no, that house is only worth
0: 0.5? So the appraiser is basically hired independently as a third party by the bank. The bank actually now, I think OSPI brought this rule in three, four years ago, the Canadian banking regulator, where they said, You as the mortgage lender, you know, Mr. Smith, who's the mortgage broker at RBC Bank, he cannot pick pick his appraiser because there's probably a conflict of interest there. So what happens is it goes through the system. So the broker just says, okay, we need to order an appraisal for the bank. Um, And the appraiser goes out to this third party appraisal company. And so now the appraisal companies are obviously like skittish. They're like, well, market's kind of dropping. So they're being really conservative in their valuations, and so the bank only wants, like you know, at the end of the day, it's like your house. Everybody thinks I own the house, like the bank owns the house. Um, so they, you know, they don't want to lend. For example, if the, if the house is only worth nine fifty in the appraiser's eye and in the independent eye, got it. then they only want to lend, you know, whatever eighty percent of oh. nine fifty. Can I can I give you a t- tiny story about how I got my flat? <laughs> my flat <appraiser>. mortgage fraud. <laughs>
1: No, this is a true story. So I so I came up to a couple of years ago. I came to the five year end of my five year fixed mortgage, and I call up my mortgage broker. Lovely guy. He's done very well for himself. And then he's like, "So rich. What do you think your loan to value is?" And I was like, "I don't know. I don't think the prices have gone up in five years." And he's like, "No, no, no. That can't be right." And then he's like, "I'm. I per- I feel like there was a house sold like two months ago in your area. Let's call the real estate agent." So he like puts the, me on hold. Put the guy on speakerphone calls him he's like so what was the house oh yeah okay such and such number such and such square foot rich how big's your house i tell him he's like okay great and he that was it that was the i swear that was the appraisal so loan to value went uh down right your loan to value went down which improved my ability to get a much cheaper rate on my mortgage and the rest is history but that, so it's sorry that was my only experience with
0: having an appraiser so i was quite sorry that's why i had to yeah i know i mean what's well, the funny the funny thing is though it's like the appraisals never, ever, ever, ever miss. Like, okay, maybe like one out of a thousand. The appraisals almost never miss in the bull market, right? Okay, like, there's that. no price too high that you can pay where, like, the appraiser is like, ah, yeah, you know, last house sold for one three, you paid one six, must be worth one six, like, rubber stamp. But, like, now that the, the, the tide is going out, it's like, oh, right. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's kind of typical of obviously, you know, bull markets and, and the cyclicality of of financial uh financial markets, right? And what's what's happening in Brampton? <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Don't bring that up again. Um the uh yeah we're gonna we're gonna avoid that topic for the for the uh sensitive listeners here that we have some of them. Um but yeah I don't know like what, I mean we'll have to see how this plays out. Like I said, obviously, you know, 50 basis points coming here in July. Do you have an updated thing, Keith? Cause I'm just looking at my, one of my, my uh, bond trader friends here, sent me some, some notes here. So he was saying that, uh, the market is pricing and I'm not sure which market he's referring to in terms of, I know there's different ways to value, uh, rate increases, but so he's got, uh, A two—the market's now pricing in a two percent overnight rate by the by July thirteenth, so that's be another fifty basis points, basically two and a half percent by September, Mm -hmm. two point eight by October. So basically, they're 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 predicting year end, uh, for the rate to finish at three percent. So the BOC will finish at three. So again, we're at one and a half right now. So we will see effectively a doubling. Of rates, uh, at least that's what the market's expecting. So a
2: few weeks ago, um, the year-end estimate was like 3.1%. Now it's down to 296 Yeah. So what that means, you know, it sounds like we're splitting hairs with things, but it just seems that the, the the Bank of Canada overnight rate, it, it should be peaking at the end of this year. That's, that's effectively what it's saying. So the further out you go, is less confidence that they'll continue to raise rates, which sort of ties into something else that we should talk about. But I just want to bring up one more item first with, with the central banks because it's so interesting and exciting. Um, so people now, you're probably aware that you know central banks were doing quantitative easing, and that's where they were you know buying bonds from the, indirectly buying bonds from the governments. Now they're going to turn to quantitative tightening, which means they're taking the bonds they bought and they're going to you know, sell them, you know, to, to the public again. Um, now the way bond prices work, when interest rates are going down, the price of bonds go up and the opposite. When rates are going up, the price for bond goes down. So the, in the, for the Federal Reserve, for example, they're now in a situation where it's highly likely the bonds that they're gonna start selling now, I think starting next week, there's the probability they will be taking a loss on these sales. Right. So if everyone else, if you have a loss when you when you sell something, you know, it's it's a loss. Right. It's, it's a negative number. And a, that's just the way it is. Um, and that's the way the real world should work. Not for the central banks, though, because they have a real challenge in that. First of all, with central banks, when they were buying bonds with the quantitative easing program, every time they received interest from, because, you know, they're holding the bond, they get paid interest on it. Uh, after they deducted money they needed to run the Fed and and stuff like that, the the net change was always distributed back to the Treasury Department. So with the Bank of Canada, the interest they were collecting by holding Government of Canada bonds, they basically took that interest and sent it right back to Ottawa so they can spend it again, right? It's an awesome... So in theory, if, if the Bank of Canada bought enough bonds, they could really... I oh guess God! Theory. Please, you don't oh. give them any ideas. <laughs> yeah, they could. So anyway, with so what? What I love about the investment world, like this, the creativity is 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 pretty cool sometimes. But what the the Federal Reserve and again all the central banks have agreed to this: any losses that the as central bank will have now from selling their bond portfolio, they they actually record it as a deferred asset. I'm confused. Or an asset with a negative sign in, in front of it because they're not allowed to have losses.
1: But they they have in the past,
2: though. No, it's a deferred asset. So okay. uh, I know, like Account, in the media world, people are saying, yeah, like they're saying, who the hell, you know, who, who cares about all this? But um, for the Fed, it doesn't matter because they, you know, they're unlimited. If someone like the ECB, had it, because they're they're structured extremely differently than everyone else. Um, they actually have a capital paid-in account that all the 19 members of the eurozone they had to pay into, and all of a sudden, if there are losses, that th- those losses come out of the capital account first, and it could very likely, if it's big enough, if a central bank like the ECB, you know, they they bought enough, which which they have, uh, of, of sovereign debt quantitative easing then um, they have the, you know, in theory, they could have a capital call to the Eurozone members. So just imagine you're the East, you're Italy, you know, you're, you're in trouble, you're Spain, you're in trouble, you know, Portugal's in trouble, so Rich Diaz goes back to the homeland or mm-hmm. set things straight. And all of a sudden you get the tap on the shoulder, not only are, you know, you're running a deficit, your economy is slowing, there's negative real rates and all that stuff. But all of a sudden uh frankfurt is telling you that hey we need you guys to pay in an extra uh you know eight billion dollars eight billion euro to, to to get your margin account back up And oh sorry go ahead well yeah but just as in the world today where people are running into challenges sometimes with the investment portfolios especially if they're on margin and, and they're levered and stuff and they get that you know unwelcome phone call or email hey you need to replenish your account or you sell everything like the world has become so distorted that the central banks have figured out a way not to be exposed to that world. Instead, you know, it's, you know, they they just spread it out across everyone else to pay for. Sorry, Rich, but that, well, no, no, I was uh... just going to say
1: there's another way that they can do that in Europe, which is adjusting something called the capital key. And the capital key is based on more or less the GDP of the, the Euro area. So you've got 19 countries, let's just say for, just for argument's sake, Germany's twenty five percent, France is twenty nine. The next biggest country by GDP is Italy, then Spain, and then I think it's either Netherlands or Belgium. I can never remember who's next. Uh, so oh. a country like uh, Greece is only two percent of GDP, but it had four has four percent of the debt in Euro terms. So, so what they the the sneaky backdoor way of doing it, which would drive someone, so it would drive Jens Weidman, absolutely crazy. He was the former Bundesbank president. Before they um, basically stop, started going bananas. Um, is that they would just adjust the capital key such that Germany would have to fill in the cap, the the losses, right? That's the other way that they could do that. But that brings in a whole
0: other political. Anyway, sorry, that was the other thing I wanted to. say. Well, I mean, speaking of the uh, the eurozone, it could always be worse. Uh, this is a, a tweet here from the always insightful Julian Brigden. Um, he says Eurozone inflation is utterly out of control with three month annualized rate of inflation running at approximately 16%. You the risk-free asset in Europe, a AKA the 10 year bunds yield 1.1%. Um, so as we've been talking about on the show, it's not really a conspiracy theory. I mean, that is kind of a uh, financial repression, uh, at its best, really. I mean, um, yeah, it seems like inflation is obviously out of control. There, obviously, the you know the the Russia-Ukraine war is not helping. I uh, highly encourage everybody to go check out. Um, see if I can maybe link it in the show notes and if for YouTube. But the the interview with Peter Zeihan um, was really just really insightful, just on 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 the whole war and and the energy markets and and you know the again not to sort of you know I know Rich we can get Rich fired up here, but really just the the lie which is this this the green transition it just like peter kind of lays it out which is like It's funny because he actually says in the interview he's like listen i'm actually like a greenie like i'm a green kind of like advocate but he's like this like the math just does not pencil that the the transition is is it's not not possible Uh, at least in the in in sort of where they're projecting, which is what, like 2040, sort of like zero, you know, this Paris Accord agreement. Um, And so, yeah, I'd really just encourage everybody to kind of go highlight that because it's really just about like keeping your emotions out of it. Like, you know, yes, you know, you might want, we might want to get off carbons and all this and feel good about it and plant some trees. But at the end of the day, it's like he says, right, like by making this transition, uh, you know, he's calling for, I mean, he might be a little bit extreme, but you know, he's, he, he believes, you know, a billion people might die of, of famine over the next several years. Uh, again, probably extreme. Uh, no need to scare everybody here. That's not going to be on the on the West Coast here in North America, but uh, certainly in some of these third world countries, um, they're going to be having some extreme difficulties.
2: You know, you just reminded me, you, you mentioned Julian Brigden. Um, I just remember, Julian and I might go see the 49ers-Broncos game this year and we agreed to uh what's it you do when you have the can of beer and you, you puncture a hole in the bottom and shotgun gun? oh man you're old <laughs> i love it <laughs> we're, we're on a different chat group together like, hey Julian, we'll, we'll do this and he's like how do we do that and then these other guys like chimed in "Well, you take it and do it that way so he- uh, if anyone's in denver in like late october i think you see two old guys doing that with a beer it would, it would be us I you're gonna Make sure to... you stretch before you guys. Uh, you guys are gonna yeah. hurt yourselves.
0: <laughs> someone's yeah. someone's gonna have to puncture the hole for them here.
2: Halt yeah, me yeah. Because I can't reach that high. That's the uh, the deal. Um, so let's next then. So Jamie well, Dime. So.
0: Oh, Jamie Diamond's comments, that was hilarious. Yeah, Keith, I don't know if you, if you want to tell the story, go ahead. I thought it was pretty funny. Well, I haven't well, I haven't heard it. So you have to tell us. Well,
2: I, I think it's interesting cuz right now, you know, uh, you know, we've in, introduced the concept the storyline that anyway, at, at ice cap, we suspect that the probability of growth slowing a lot faster than what the market is expecting it is higher That's what we expect and now we're starting to see that narrative take place it's, you know it's coming out from different places and uh, anyway jamie diamond came out with the same concept yesterday the day before but uh, well, jamie so whenever- jamie diamond by the way is uh ceo
0: of jp morgan bank in case you guys don't know who that is
2: yeah, here's a really interesting story, how he became CEO of J.P. Morgan, by the way. like Just go into the backstory, you'll find all that. Uh, basically, he got banished to Chicago. So he didn't get his way on Wall Street, and he lost out in the power struggle. So he, he went with Bank One in Chicago for a number of years. And then all the all the crap happened in New York. And you know, by default, by him not moving up or down in the industry, everyone else dropped out. By default, he came back in. You know, now he's leading like probably the most successful, you know, bank in the world. But anyway, but Jamie Dimon, he was at um, an interview or something the other day. And he described the same concept, but he described the same, listen, a hurricane is coming. He said, you may not see it right now or may not appreciate how strong it's going to be or what the damage it can do. But he was talking about a slowdown in in the economy that's coming. And it's sort of interesting because this morning I was looking at, you know, growth estimates uh, for the developed world and the emerging market world. So for this year versus next year, and then on an individual country basis and all that stuff. And so growth is estimated to be lower this year than last year and a little bit lower next year as well, but they're just like small changes. And that, and you know, that's one of our points with the industry. No one has ever forecast a, you know, a dramatic declined or ascent in anything. It's always, you know, you're within that one standard deviation, you know, and stuff like that. But now the fact that more people are talking about the probability of having a pretty good rollover is coming up, including, you know, the head of JP Morgan. Uh, that that just caught my attention. It's well, that you, people well,
0: yeah, you see. missed the best part, which is he said, this guy says a hurricane's coming. Yeah, his own analysts at the bank are not forecasting any sort of recession uh, whatsoever. So I, again, I don't know... <laughs> let's explain why though let's explain yeah well rich i mean that's why i was gonna i was gonna defer to you so please just show me like show
1: me an incentive and i'll show you the result right so like we're very critical of these people rightly so a lot of the times and in some cases we're a bit harsh because you can't be an investment banker and be trying to like ipo some stocks right for company xyz and then have your like chief economist be like oh but the economy is gonna tank so the company that we're trying to IPO or the deal we're trying to get made or the funding we're trying to secure for, let's say a wind energy farm or whatever, <laughs> you know, you can't have, you have like there's different sort of silos in the bank and they're supposed to be like a, something called the Chinese wall, which is probably an inappropriate term these days. But, you know, between the different, um, you know, the investment banking sector and the strategists and the broker and the prime broker and all these different groups. And but and they're supposed to be this like you know, um, you know this understanding that they're not supposed to communicate. But if the, if, the, if the economist comes out and says, "By the way, the world's screwed. It's over. It's over. It's over." The, the investment bankers are going to have a hard time or hard be hard pressed to raise the X billion dollars that they need to get this new company out. And so that's why you got to take these sort of these kind of estimates with a very large grain of salt. And independent advisors. Acorn macro <laughs> <plugs>. <laughs> are usually a better way of, of, of getting that kind of analysis, but just in defense of that business model, I kind of, I get it. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm too
0: naive, but no, not... I think that's a, I think that's a great point. Um, I actually kind of wanted to touch on that as well. Circle back, maybe get your thoughts, but, um, Keith, you were talking about just like, you know, slow margin little GDP revisions here and there and, and whatnot. Um, do, is, do you put any weighting, and, and Rich, I is a question for you. Do you put any weighting on um, Canada's most recent uh, GDP print? So the, the economy expanded 3.1% in the first quarter, but uh, the expectations, the forecast by uh, all the economists was about uh, the consensus estimate was about 5.2%. So it was a decent sized miss. There's still quite a bit of growth there at 3.1, but I don't know how much stock do you put into
1: that? Me, I, I think that there's a couple of parts of our economy that are doing super well and it might help GDP in a way that i mean. don't get me wrong. There's stuff that, you know, um, for example, real estate, not great. Um, but you know, there's other parts that are doing very well and I, I'm sure they're adding to it, you know, our exports continue to go up, you know, yes, our imports are also going up, which is probably net drag on, on, on GDP overall. But, um, that's sort of, you know, that's like sort of, um. That's like an esoteric point. My point is, it's like, you know, it's just two things. One is it's a backward looking indicator. So it's important to remember that. I mean, I think GDP for Germany was 3.4% in Q1. Let's wait until the end of Q2 before we, you know, we celebrate. So just as a comparable. Um, And then the other thing is that there are, I mean, you know, Canada still has an incredible amount of population growth. That's important contributor to GDP. Um, you know, the oil sector is important the, the manufacturing sector is doing relatively well still. Um, you know, there's still a bunch of service sector industries that are, are also doing well. Um, and so I I don't know, I think the, the US is sort of, excuse me, the, the Canada is, is the tail, um, you know, it, it'll be, you know, it is it is a function of other larger, more important economies, um, and how those do is going to dictate sort of how, and it might be with a leg. And so oh. that that's important to it just to i remember. mean yeah
0: i guess from a lag perspective all we can say is like so q man remember q1 q1 was like the top the peak of the canadian housing uh bull market here right so january february was kind of the top in march we just started to slowly taper off so in terms of showing up in the data april may june are going to be relatively you know q2 is not going to be great for canadian housing and i have to think q3 is going to look even worse so uh, again, as we sort of look forward, I think I don't know. My personal base case is I think the 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 economy is going to slow tremendously. Um, just then, that's pretty much just my own views based on what I see in the housing market. So there's
1: there's just one more thing I think in general, and, and we've met we've mentioned this I think months and months and months ago. And I think you know in many ways the pandemic is over, although some people in this country would really love it to continue. And in other ways, I think it's important to remember that the pandemic is not over, not in a, you know, hospitalization rate, but like the, it's the reverberation. You know, when you throw, I forgive this analogy, maybe I'm going to garble this, but you know, you have a swimming pool and you throw a, a, a like some large heavy object in the swimming pool and the waves ripple out. They hit the edge like of me? the swimming pool. You throw me in? <laughs> what? what? You're throwing me into the pool? Sure. We're throwing Keith into the swimming pool. <laughs> And the 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 waves ripple out, and then hit the they hit the edge of the swimming pool, and they come back. And I think we're still I still think we're in this. We're still feeling it's only been you know two years since or two and a half years since China lied about human to human transmission, right? So um, it's important to remember that I think that there's you know in the same way that two thousand eight what you know when you look at the nber which is the national bureau of economic research they say that the recession was two quarters or, or whatever but i i submit to everyone that the recession took really you know probably four or five years i mean employment prime age employment took six or seven years to get back to peak so you can say rich yeah the recession two quarters of negative gdp growth were in 2008 9 those and yeah, some definition devised by some guy sitting in his ivory tower, fine. But I would submit to you that it took six years in the um, in US for, to fully recover, to fully shake off the kind of negative side effects of the recession in 2008. In Europe, it was even longer. If you look at real retail sales in Europe, it took almost 10 years to, uh, you know eight, I can't remember exactly the number, but it took like seven or eight years to recover. And I think, you know, you can, we can, and I think that that's where we start looking at these numbers say, oh, it's up, it's down. It's where we, we're going let's say we have, let's say we go into a double dip quote unquote recession this year, right? We had, let's say we have two quarters of negative growth is that isn't, in my view, I think what's more important is that analogy where you have the wave go out and then the wave come back in and you we're still letting the water sort of settle. At Keith sinks as Keith sinks to the bottom of the swimming pool, never to return. I think we're, the water still needs to to settle and, and set before I'm I'm ready to start obsessing over growth numbers here and there. Don't get me wrong; I mean, things might happen. The equity market wars, this and that, things might change. But I think that that's an important consideration. That just because someone says the recession, quote unquote, is over, doesn't mean people aren't feeling the after effects. That's
0: well said, Keith.
2: As I'm... speechless. Because... Yeah, speechless. Well, I just bond. threatened
0: to
1: kill you. <laughs> as I'm so sitting I'll here, I'll jump in there after you, Keith. I promise.
0: As I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm sitting here reading the uh, the bloom tubes. Uh, it says the headline says Goldman's Waldron Wards of unprecedented economic shocks, echoing Jamie Dimon. Um, so, I mean, all the uh, all the bankers seem to be jumping on, which is kind of interesting, but. That might be a contrarian indicator, by the way. <laughs> true, true. I don't really, I, I never trust a banker. So I don't know. I don't really know what to make of it. But um, I, I mean, that's certainly certainly my view. I, I don't know. I just definitely feels like a time to, to be a lot more liquid and have some cash ready to deploy for some opportunities, which. Well, that's the thing I think that's really important. And
1: credit to Keith for sort of identifying this much, much earlier than I, I sort of had to come around to his view, which is, you know, the markets will price this in a lot earlier than the economic data will ever we've talked about sort of bellwether stocks and other pods, but I think it's just, again, I think the market, this is why I, you know, I've, I've had to change my view, you know, obviously China, the stupid COVID policy and then Russia invading Ukraine, which I, by the way, I don't think we talk about enough on this podcast, largely because we don't really know what's going on, but I think that we don't discuss sort of the effect on, you know, wheat prices, which refuse to go down despite the global growth fears. Um, fertilizer. Yeah. I mean, one of the charts that I was been really, really looking, what I've been looking at is sort of the interplay between industrial metals, which are inextricably linked to growth and wheat and other grains, but let's just use wheat, for example. Um, and, you know, while China was locking down industrial metals basically fell off a cliff, still pretty high, but absolutely rolled over. And that wheat prices, just keep kept on going up. You say, well, Rich, why does that matter? Normally, the whole commodity space will rise and fall together depending on growth and expectations of growth, et cetera, et cetera. And for that dislocation to continue, which we can share um, with the, with the viewers. I mean, that's, I think a really kind of a fascinating wrinkle and something that I'm, I'm continuing to keep a really close eye on. I don't know, Steve, if you had it.
0: Well, yeah, no, I just remember you saying like earlier in the show, which is a great quote. I I always tend to think about this a lot, which is like, you know, if you're not, you know, when the facts change and you don't change your mind with it, like you're just you're kind of just a stubborn idiot, right? So, I remember like when we did the the the, the I think the first show in January, we kind of did like the year end show and like predicting like this is at the time when like Scotia was coming out with their rate hike forecast and all this stuff, and we were kind of like, well, listen, like it's two to three hikes. Like again, when the facts change, which was like in February, Russia did a full on invasion of Ukraine, and all of a sudden, you know you're choking off one of the largest exporters of, of oil, oil and gas. And not only that, but whatever, everything. Yeah. Everything else that Russia basically exports, which is like, you know, the huge bulk of the commodity market, fertilizer, uh, the whole green car revolution, you know, that all that like depends on Russia basically being, you know, complicit and, and supplying a lot of these precious metals. And so, Yeah, that's that was obviously a highly inflationary event because I think going into that year, right, everybody said, well, like based on sort of like our forward metrics here, inflation should peak roughly around Q1. But then again, you have this like full scale, you know, war basically breaking out, and 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 the facts change, Mm -hmm. and so and then and then just seeing how central bankers are reacting to that, right or wrong, how they're reacting to that is by you know trying to kill this, I think, commodity induced inflation uh by by hiking rates. So yeah, I think you have to sort of change change your facts and that's why we you know when we did this Q&A or whatever this bet last week, right? We all had 50 basis points on the on on the Twinkies here to to raise rates and I th- I wouldn't be surprised if they go another 50 here in July because that's
2: just what they're going to do until something breaks. Like some of these um like the whole movement in the in the energy sector is like all of the, a lot of that happened before uh, the Russia Ukraine war started. You. And a lot of it has been driven, as, as Rich has pointed out, so many times, it, it is driven by climate change policies. And then you know the weather is also changing. It's affecting on the on the agricultural yields when fertilizer price has gone up, not gas being burned off, you know, all, all that stuff. And what's what's great though uh, about that from an investment perspective, there are ways to play it. You know, there, you know, we we've we we've been adding to agricultural exposure. Sorry agriculture commodity exposure now over the last seven or nine months, probably. And these are these, you know, big turns that you see happening. It's not something that is good for one month and then it's over. And you have a, you, you're able to identify, Hey, this is a, a big secular change that's taking place. And then as an investment manager, you we we want to allocate this amount of the portfolio to that space. And we're going to do it. And in, in sort of in these different tranches because there is going to be volatility along the way, but this, you know, even if there is a peaceful solution over there, and I'm not seeing, again, I'm not seeing any signs that's being suggested. So that tells me that it will be the status quo. It increases the probability that energy prices, agriculture prices, and then inflation as well, you know, from the commodity side, it, it's going to go higher. So a- again, from the investment side, there are there are opportunities here to protect your savings, even grow a part of the portfolio outside of the traditional you know, equity, uh, 60, 40, baby, 60, 40 is
1: what is that? That's bad. the
2: balanced portfolio. Yeah. That's what Canadians have been sold now for 80, 90 years. Like bonds. Sorry, sorry, sorry. During the eighties and the nineties and NDOs. Yeah. I mean,
1: it did that, that. That's the, that's the tough part about, um, us ragging on it now, you know, for a long time, it did really, really well when you have interest rates go from 20 to zero, you know, makes you look like a genius. And I think that the trick now is to say, listen, we're in a regime shift. Um, And and it's always, it's always tricky, right? Because everybody's always desperate to be the first to plant their flag at the top of the hill and say, well, I'm the one who identified the regime shift. Eh, I'm less interested in being first than I am being right. Um, And I think that we're, I mean, there were people who were on this oil thing before I was, there's people who are on this end of the bond bull market thing before any of us were. I think that but I think it's hard to disagree. Now we're in like the second inning, I think, of this sort of regime shift. This is not the—I don't think we're first, and I think it's—I think it's important that um, we, again we could be wrong, um, but I think it's we're definitely in the second or third inning of this Rich. like new regime.
0: Rich, I'd be curious your thoughts on—I think we've chatted about this before briefly on the show, but just on on sort of like the labor market and like one of the things I was having a good conversation with with. Um, you know, one of my one of my friends in the industry here they they run massive uh, lending book in the real estate market and um, like commercial and uh, they've got they've got like rents like their forecasts on rents are are sky high their right. forecast. and like so I was gonna ask you in terms of like because I'm already seeing it like in the rental market here it is insanely competitive right now. Um, fact, it's, it's way, way harder than the resale market, obviously. Um, but like how much of this comes back down to, to the labor market, obviously wage growth picking up because like people are trying to like, you know, renegotiate their, their salaries, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but also the fact that like a lot of these boomers have now left the, you know, Keith you know, hasn't left the job market yet, but a lot of them have. And they're never, a lot of them are never really coming back. Right. And that was, that's a huge demographic shift. Um, So do do you, do you foresee like, you know, recession or no recession? Do you foresee like just tough to, to, to fill a lot of these jobs moving forward and like the, the upwards wage trajectory? Like, are we in a, basically is the, is the bargaining power coming back to sort of the, the worker or the laborer? as opposed to the corporation?
1: Yeah, I mean, man, that is a tough one. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I'd like to split those into two, if that's okay. One is the rent thing. I think the rent thing is is directly related to immigration. I think when you come here and you don't necessarily have a bank account or you don't have a, a, a you know, you, you know people with, you know, the if you're in the 1%, you're probably staying wherever you're from. I think if you're coming here, you're probably getting in the lower end of that pay scale. I could be wrong about that. But, um, you know, you're coming here, you're renting. And I think that that's I think that the massive immigration, I think, is directly playing into that, especially in the cities where everybody goes to right? Let's record be clear.
0: record immigration in Canada in Q1, by the way.
1: Right. And I think that that's not that's not going to stop. And I think that that's that's so that's the first I think that's one one thing of it. And then on the labor side, I'm of the view that countries like in the US, where there's very little immigration relative to history and um, you do have a demographic kicker which is we've talked about this before which is the age dependency ratio so less working age people relative to the old and the young i think wage growth is going to be structural it's structural for two reasons one you literally don't have enough people but also the people that you do have are it's your mismatch right we've discussed this before there's not enough bricklayers and there's too many people who've done you know um <laughs> trying not to get in trouble here have done degrees in universities that may or may not be as a, as useful or productive as they were, as they thought or were told. Um, and so you have the skills mismatch, mismatch, which is the short term, like acute labor shortage stuff. But I think that there's the, the, the real kicker for wage growth is the demographic thing where you have just you have a lot of people retiring, and you don't have enough people to fill those jobs. And the problem is those people who are retiring hopefully don't die right away, they go and spend. So you still have the demand quotient, but you don't have the labor quotient. And then, but in Canada, it's weird, right? Because you have a lot of people coming in to depress those, I guess, depress those wages. Although, I don't know, I've been told that's not strictly true. So I'm still trying to figure that out. But in in general, I think, yeah, I think that there is going to be an updraft um, for wages. Um, I do think that labor, who that's been basically been trounced and has gotten less and less and less and less of the pie for, for basically a generation. Maybe I'm too optimistic, you know, I get criticized for being too optimistic, but I think that the labor is going to eat more and more and more versus capital. And that, that happens when you have interest rates rise, you have, you know, more leftist governments for better or for worse. You have um, literally labor just has a better negotiating position today than it did 20 years ago or, or whatever. That's sort of the way I see it. I think there's a bunch of things that are interplaying, right? You've got skills mismatched, demographic, structural stuff. You've got um, immigration, immigration that's been really, really high here. Um, It's just, and then of course, then you've got the automation piece that comes in and kind of mixes the whole paint canister up and screws everything up. And is automation good for wages or bad for wages? You know, there are people in South Korea who would say, and there's beautiful papers written on how automation is actually really, really good for wages. And you say, how does that make any sense if you're taking, you know but, and then there's other people who disagree. So it's, it's a really confusing subject. I obviously you can tell I'm not exactly clear, well, but
0: the, the age dependency ratio, I think is the big main driver of a lot of this stuff. I mean, I think it just comes down to in general, trying to p- predict like macro trying to predict it's macro <laughs> right like it's, it's it, i mean it, like it's it's fun here to sit here and like discuss it and and sort of you know i think we can clearly see the two to three month trajectory but like as you start getting further out like these are such complicated dynamic systems yeah. like but also
1: I don't think that the, the the mistake i think people make is there's always it's, there's two mistakes i think people always make one is that it's only just one thing if you nail this one thing then you forget everything else that's silly and then the other thing is that um the other th- mistake I think people make is that, you know, each country is slightly different in a way. And so the U.S., for example, has very, very low immigration for the first time relative, like relative to Canada. Right now, it's, you know, the U.S. has very, very low immigration and Canada has much, much, much higher immigration. I think, I think the numbers.
0: A- yeah, no, I think the numbers last year were. So I think Canada immigrated about 400,000 yeah. people. And I think the U.S. was about I, th- I think it was about 500,000 for the U.S., and the U S US, is, is 10 times, times the size as Canada. So yeah. Uh, Keith, I don't know if you have anything to sort of add or chime in there, but, uh,
2: yeah. So, I mean, these are, you know, like long-term right waves, you know, longitudinal waves. Is that the right word? Or oh, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. Um, uh, but it, and again, like, you know, I'm an investment manager. We were always, you know, always looking to, bit short of a time frame for some things, but our biggest concern right now, and it's anecdotal, like the inflation bite that's being taken out of lower income households. It's extraordinary, guys. Yeah. Like it, it, it absolutely is. So, if a family just say they're spending, I say it's a thousand dollars a month on groceries before, like that has to be at least fifteen hundred dollars a month now. Like it's it's things have gone up that is, hasn't gone up eight percent like what they're telling us out of Statistics Canada and, and stuff like that, and then with gas prices going up and companies you know they're, they're desperate to get people to work at minimum wage. Like you go to the stores and like it's they can't get anyone to do those jobs, so prices are also going up. I I just think we are headed for this point where demand or discretionary income is not rising. So therefore aggregate demand is going to slow as well. And I know immigration coming in you know, helps to keep the aggregate side up. But again, I just think we're headed potentially for this growth scare that it's not being discussed in other at the banking sector level. Remember last week remember last week we talked about the bank's earnings that came out and you know, we, we sort of talked about how what they're provisioning for the loan portfolios and stuff like that. So right now, the banks are thinking, hey, there's there's nothing here to be worried about. You know, like there's no, uh, there's no hurricane coming, you know, as, as Jamie Dimon pointed out, you know, down south of the border. So I, I think that is a potential for a surprise on the economy. And uh, it would be a very favorable for the bond market if this would happen. Because again, like people are not expecting it at this point. And we always look for contrarian positions to put into portfolio So the you long know, bond is the long bond is, is one of them.
0: I think it's, yeah, I think it's a great point. I think just to add here to wrap it up. So Keith, you just, you know, mentioned the uh, you know, households, especially lower in- income households, obviously really getting hit hard by inflation and, and not having a lot of discretionary spending. Um, so if we just look at you know for example the most recent rate hike here so 50 basis point so just on your typical mortgage so if you're a homeowner in Canada again I think the national home price index uh, which the national home price averages about 870 thousand dollars so let's just assume you have a 700 thousand dollar mortgage that would sort of be like your your average mortgage size I suppose if you're if you're purchasing today obviously we know people bought a long time ago as well but. Um, so every fifty basis point rate hike increase uh, will would ad- adjust your variable rate mortgage by about twenty five bucks. Um, so sorry. So so for every hundred thousand dollar of mortgage that you have, it adds about twenty five dollars to your to your monthly payment. So what I'm basically saying is, if you have a seven hundred thousand dollar mortgage, uh, you're adding about one hundred and seventy five dollars per month just on that 50 basis point rate hike so 175 dollars, and, and that's
2: in addition you know to the grocery bill gone up and the energy yeah, bill gone exactly up. like so, another you no know, another yeah. good data points uh, sorry to interrupt you there um if you look at revolving credit which is looking at basically credit card credit card you know yeah. debt that you're looking at you know in, in general you know lower income households you know that's how they get by by using credit cards uh higher income households you don't you use your credit card just for the ease of transactions and collecting points on stuff, right? That That's it. But the growth in revolving credit, this is on the American side, which I'm sure you can check out the Canadian side. I'm sure it's very similar. It's the same, it's the same. It's, it's increasing exponentially. So if something happens along the way where this group is unable to make the payments or they have to get, you know, lie on an application to get another one, like there's, there's a big, potential debt loss coming up which is something we didn't t- i know earlier this week i think with steve or rich when you guys sent it to me that the americans are considering writing off i think ten thousand dollars of every student. ten, $10 thousand dollars yeah
0: biden's it was apparently they were going to announce it prior to well then that shooting happened at the school there uh, unfortunately so they apparently postponed it but uh it was a ten thousand dollar loan forgiveness for every student loan outstanding, $10,000. So, you know, it's funny. People always used to laugh at me and say, Oh, you know, Steve's idea of this, you know, debt jubilees. Like, I mean, this is like, this is, you know, we talk about financial repression and debt jubilees. Like, that's a debt forgiveness. Like I know it starts there, but maybe like maybe in five years it's 20 grand and maybe it's. But hey, It's not really
2: a, a debt for, in this one here, the, the debt just simply shifts from the student's, to the rest of the taxpayers, that that's all it is. Like it right. has not yeah. But I, I, it.
0: I mean, yeah, you, you can argue, about like the semantics and the mechanics of it. Like I'm not advocating for this as like good policy, but like I might. I, I, I mean, can't I think it I is, said that. I can't believe I this. We'll say this for next time. I
1: can't believe I said that, but I actually might have changed my mind on this. But keep going, keep going. Well, I
0: do think, Rich, that it's absolutely insane in the U.S. that student debt is not forgivable. It's like if you go for if you go through bankruptcy, it stays with you for yeah, life. Yeah, that's 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 stupid.
2: All, that's all other debt is forgivable, to be just so people understand. Why right? did that happen? How did that happen? I don't know.
0: But I don't know. Probably all the big universities there said no, no chance. I don't know. Wall. I don't know. Wall no, Street you, obviously
2: you, makes a lot of money off those those loans. Yeah, you can research that one off offline. Um, but you know, but I think that's not the whole episode. That's really, a can of worms. You know, we'll, 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 <laughs> well, but the whole thing about the effectiveness of the whole you know, academia and how it's put together well, that's, and,
1: and structured. It's that's the counter argument because they just don't realize how inefficient getting all those unmentioned degrees <laughs> might be. Like I, I live,
0: I live like I, I have can, some comments on this, but I'm going to, i do not want to get kicked off of the show. So I'm going to keep them to myself.
2: Like I can frisbee a, a pizza at two universities, you know, from my front lawn. That's how close I am. And in you know, the last two weeks have been graduation week down in this part of the country. And, uh, you know, I see all the students with, you know, it looks, looks like it's such a great time, you know, three, four or five years they were in their own degree. And, and I'm just wondering like, what, what did they do? You know, how much did it cost? And what, what's, what's the economic output of it at the end of the day? And some of it is not measurable, absolutely. I mean, education is education. because universities will say, well, we're educating you. You know, we're not training you for a trade. You know, you have to go beyond that. They're not even doing that anymore. <laughs> I'm the well, linear, free though. education. Yeah, I know. No charge. But it's gotten to a point, though, where the, the, the cost-benefit analysis, something is just not quite accurate where in, in Canada, you know, four years maybe you come out with, if you had to, you know, fund the whole thing, it could be a 50 to 70 grand, you know, bill if you're all done, like if the kid is staying on campus and and all that stuff.
0: This, it's this is,
2: this is the breaking and this is like this is
0: the breaking of the, the social contract, right? Which is like think about it as a kid, right or wrong, like maybe you're the idiot for believing in that. but right or wrong, everybody was brought up to told that go to school, get an education, go to university, get a good job and then you can buy a house, raise a family. And it's like, well everyone's like, well, oh, hold on a minute. I did all that, I went to school. I came out. I'm still not getting paid enough. I can't buy a house. I can't afford to have kids. It's like, and then that's why you're seeing, I think all these like social and political tensions, because to me that. Wait a second. Wait a second. The contract is that if you educate yourself in
1: something useful, you don't have to go and do, Oh, I really want to say it, but I won't say it at a degree that wouldn't necessarily be, how do we call it? Useful in a non-bourgeoisie society, there. you can well, It comes load- down to
2: expectations, right? right. So, if, if if you if you become educated in the field and your expectation is that you know you're you're not doing it to to generate your own wealth or or income, it's it's to truly it's at that educational level that that that's that's fantastic. But I do know that you know when I bump into people who they've, they've gone through academia and multiple degrees and. You hear what the degree is in, and then the expect the income expectation on their side, it's it's completely out of whack with what it would be from a business side, you know. Because you know, three of us we run a business, and if one of these uh guys came and knocked on ice cap doors, yeah, I have these one, two, three degrees and in, in this, and I expect to get paid that, I'd say, I'm sorry, pal, go to the bank and see what they're gonna do. And you know what? The bank is also gonna tell them you know to, to go somewhere else as, as well. So anyway, it, it is no, a no, difficult- but Keith, No, but you were
1: on. you're touching on something really, really important. It's not just business. It's what society needs. Society needs right now, let's just say for argument's sake, bricklayers and welders. That's what society is telling you they need. And, and, the, and the way by which society is telling you this is a signal. And what is that signal? The signal is a pricing mechanism, supply and demand, and wages for that specific role have, are skyrocketing and so when you when people people are basically patently ignore the signals that they don't want and go do degrees that we don't need and so it's not i don't think it's just about business although you're right to make that a point society more broadly is saying perhaps we sh- you don't need to understand certain concepts to be constructive and to help your fellow man and I think that that's
0: you were. talking about Canada that. needs more realtors, <laughs> the backbone of this economy. You're right. you're probably right about that. Oh man! All right, well that's a good place to wrap it up. Mortgage back secure, the, um, securities, the I backbone. Tried really hard to yeah, a lot of time we get all these to... like emails, uh, how to get your real estate license. Oh. Um, no, as always. Wait, there's three... a
2: license. Do you have a
0: license? <laughs> yeah, it takes about two weeks. No, uh, it's it's a little that. bit it's a little bit more strenuous than that. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the the Looney Hour University here, so we uh, we appreciate your support. Uh, as as always, all we ask is that you share this episode with at least one friend or family member to continue to grow the Looney Hour community organically. Uh,
2: so, as always, we'll see you next week.